music uh, is different from language in the sense that like, the message that music conveys uh, is not apparently very clear yet. So, I mean, it's clear that music changes our emotional states, it changes our perceptual things, but it's not clear why we have music and all of human society have music. So where is this coming from and what is the evolutionary advantage of having music as one of our traits that makes us human? You have these cycles of complexity in social dynamics. I think we are observing now a restructuration of things at different level from the point of view of the countries, and I will say from the international order soon during this century probably. And I think this is because we build on increasing the complexity of the complete system, and then we need to kind of find a way to decrease this complexity to make sense to the individual, the different level of society, to live in this complex world. One way to frame the science of complexity is as a revelation of the hidden order under seemingly separate phenomena, a teasing out of music from the noise of history and nature. This effort follows centuries of work to find the rules that structure language, music, and society. How strictly analogous are the patterns governing a symphony and those that describe a social transformation? Math and music are old friends, but new statistical and computational techniques afford the possibility of going even deeper. What fundamental insights and what sounds emerge by bringing physicists, composers, social scientists, data artists, and biologists together? Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week on Complexity, we sit with two of SFI's external professors, Miguel Fuentes at the Argentine Society for Philosophical Analysis and the Institute of Complex Systems of Valparaiso, and Marco Buongiorno Nardelli at the University of North Texas for a discussion that roams from their working group on the complexity of music to fundamental questions about the nature of emergence, to how we might bring all of these ideas together to think about social transformation as a kind of music in its own right. A show that spends so much time exploring sense and nonsense would hardly be complete without technical errors. So please accept our apologies for losing some of Miguel's backstory to a recording glitch. For this reason, be extra sure to check out our extensive show notes with links to all of our references at complexity.simplecast.com. And note that applications are now open for our Complexity Postdoctoral Fellowships. If you value our research and communication efforts, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and consider making a donation or finding other ways to engage with us at santafe.edu slash engage. Thank you for listening. Miguel, Marco, it's a pleasure to have the two of you on Complexity Podcast. My pleasure, Michael. Thank you. Great to be here. I have insanely ambitious plans for this conversation with the two of you. But before we dive into all of that, 
talk about how you got into doing research and how it is that your life became animated by the kind of questions that you're exploring in your work. Miguel, can we have you go first? Yes, of course. That's actually a very nice and difficult question for me because I think myself as a eternal student or something like that, very close to being a student all the time, study things all the time. And I feel that during my career, I was searching different questions that just appears in the horizon. And I moved to that place. And during that move, the horizon changed. And you can imagine that then there is a new question that I probably or switch or kind of move, you know, in a diagonal direction. So I begin my career as a physicist. Sure. So I have this kind of a dual background that goes from music and physics at the same time. As a matter of fact, I started to study music when I was six years old. So I've been a musician for way longer than I've been a physicist. And I always kind of kept these two passions in parallel. So on my physics side, I'm a computational material physicist, condensed matter problems, mostly development of methods and computational tools. So I'm a computational person. And um, you know, I did my studies in Italy. I did my PhD at the International School for Advanced Studies in Trieste. Then I moved to the US. I became faculty first in North Carolina, and then I moved to the University of North Texas. And here, uh, I kind of managed in the last uh, 10 years uh, to make uh, also my music uh, activities that were always very active. I mean, I always did a lot of things. I was a performer for many years, uh, a composer. I, I mean, I've been writing music for forever. And I managed to kind of bring these two things together, basically united by this idea of complexity and this representation that I introduced of uh, music uh, as a network system. So for me, it's very satisfying to see how these two ends of the spectrum uh, between art and science can be combined uh, and we are able to ask uh, meaningful questions both on the artistic side, uh, because we can use these ideas for writing music, but also on kind of more the analytic side and the research side where we try to understand and frame the problem in a way that has never been done before. So that's kind of very adventurous, very exciting. My fail, and we don't know that, but we need to see what happens at the end of the road. So, I mean, if, about my background in music, I mean, I'm a woodwind player. I play flute, recorders, saxophones. I played jazz for many years in the past. Right now, I don't practice much because I used to travel with a flute. Now I travel with a baton because I mostly direct ensembles rather than perform myself. So, but um, I find this, uh, I mean, combining this two things and being able what we are doing uh, at the Santa Fe Institute and being external faculty there is kind of a dream come true because I kind of get out of these boxes uh, and able to build something that is larger than the individual things. So in a very complex way. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. So you mentioned that this kind of work has bearing on both 
composition and analysis, but it's on analysis where I want to focus for most of this conversation. Y'all sent me your funding proposal for assembling a working group of people who can approach the problem of the complexity and the structure of music. Mm -hmm. The two of you are co-organizing this five-year working group here at SFI, and I've been lucky enough to sit in on at least some of this, you know, the sort of preliminary meeting that you held in 2020 and some of the meeting that you held this summer. And one of the things that comes out of this proposal that I want to stress and explore with the two of you is the promise you see for understanding music in, as you put it, three-way quantitative data-centered and complexity-based framework for understanding it as the computational, cognitive, cultural, and social agent that has shaped human societies for more than 40,000 years. So what actually brought you together to co-organize this? And from there, how it is that the two of you are starting to apply complex systems methods for thinking about music in a way that is more formal and promising than some of the more bespoke ways that people are trying to use geometry and mathematics to do this in the past. So, I mean, in a way, it's by chance that this whole thing started, <laughs> because I didn't know Miguel until I met him at the end of 2019, when I was visiting SFI for the first time, and I was giving a talk about my work on network structure and music spaces, and we were sharing an office, right, Miguel? <laughs> and from the sharing of this office came all these ideas of how to grow this uh, seed that I was kind of planting within SFI into an actual program. So I'm, besides being a composer, I also work as a media artist and I do music installations. And so the first music installation that was presented in Santa Fe was for the Carrens New Media International Festival in 2018. And at that time, my friend and colleague David Stout introduced me to Jen Dunn that I didn't know because she came to see the exhibition and David was there and we shot and and I always kind of had this uh, dream of becoming part of the Santa Fe Institute environment because I'm very interdisciplinary. All these uh, places where you have people that come from all over the place and they share ideas and you can you know, discuss about anything. It's very fascinating for me. And so uh, right at the same time, I was starting to think about uh, these ideas of networks uh, and music. I mean, I was working already a little bit on networks on my condensed matter physics side because I was developing uh, with my students uh, some sort of um, way of uh, using networks uh, to analyze large databases of materials properties. Uh, and so I was already kind of working with these tools uh, and it was kind of natural to go from that uh, to the music side. So then when I made visited, Miguel was there. We chatted, we went out for dinner, <laughs> we ate together, we drank together. And then uh, I don't even remember who said it. I think Miguel said, well, we should do a working group about this. <laughs> and we went to Jen and Jen said, oh, sure, send me a proposal. <laughs> and that started the whole thing. Both of you, in whatever order, talk a little bit more about how it is that you are actually thinking about networks and the features of generalized musical spaces, rather, how you're applying network theory to understanding the melody and harmony in particular. 
this is where I think the rubber really meets the road in terms of how it is that you get from being a physicist studying statistical mechanics to being able to do things like design software that can compose and actually interpret musical patterns, melodic and timbral stuff. Yeah. If I can say something about uh, actually what was something that was saying Marco, during that time, actually, that we meet, I was finishing and I was coming from some work that we did with some colleagues, analyzing some text and doing some metrics using network, trying to study the different properties of text. I was particularly very motivated at that moment to try to imagine to know nothing. Actually, this was the idea. And I think this is an idea that is, you know, just there. Many people have this idea of if you do not nothing about the text, can you say something? Can you say something about all this information that is there, but you do not know what is saying? Particularly, actually, at that moment, we were studying the Boinich manuscript. I don't know if you know that, but it's a very famous manuscript. I know that there is some news nowadays, but at that time, it was a very peculiar manuscript. Nobody knows what was there. And we put all the machinery of network, a new metric that we invented at that time. And we could say at that moment that the Voynich text was a test with content using all the metrics that we have at that moment. And we analyze not only that, but we analyze poetry, we analyze different texts in Spanish, in English, etc. So I was coming from that work and we begin to talk with Marco and Marco have this fascinating idea of kind of thinking in music as data and also going, and I think this is a very nice actually, uh, from data to music, not in a very obvious and not in a very trivial way. And we talk about that. And again, I was coming from that previous work and I was thinking, you know, this is fantastic because music is kind of a linear way of saying something in the same way of text. And so I was jump into that uh, questions and problem. And, you know, we talk and we chat for days actually. And I think we agree that we can do something related with how we can approach music as data and how we can analyze the music of data at the very beginning, actually, because now I think we open up the working group to other spaces, other dimension of uh, human sensory, I would say. Uh, but at that time was, you know, just data, analyze musical data, trying to see if we can have new metrics. And I can say now that my approach to network information is building new metrics that explore, and I will say now, non-local properties of the network. That was more or less my point of view at that moment, again, because nowadays the working group and all the ideas that they want to put uh, coming from that working group in Santa Fe Institute, they are more broader, I think. They include people that is coming from neuroscience, human behavior, et cetera, et cetera. So nowadays, I think we are going beyond this idea of analyzing just the data and music and trying to see what kind of information we can have. So I don't know if you, Marco, can add something about this. So in a way, when we met, uh, 
I was already developing this approach uh, of encoding or transcribing the musical data into actual data that could be manipulated uh, as we do in all computational sciences. And I already developed this concept of network. I mean, the translation of the score and the harmonic content of the piece into a network where the relationship between the different nodes that correspond to different chords are a manifestation of the ideas, I mean, the procedure the composer follows to create that particular piece. So in a way, how particular rules of harmony, for instance, emerge as a property of the network rather than kind of, if you don't know the rules, you can get those rules by analyzing the network. It's a bit like the same thing that Miguel was saying. If you don't know the content of a text, you can still learn something about the text without knowing the rules that tell you, okay, this word means that and this word means something else. So as you've already stated, Miguel, there's an interesting link here between thinking about word strings in this way and thinking about melodies in this way. And I just want to pay dues to conversations that we've had about this on the show already with Dmitry Tomasko, who's part of this group, and with our recently appointed external professor, Brandon Ogbunu, who is thinking about this in terms of legible or illegible protein sequences. There's something really profound here. One of the things that both of you talk about, and you know, I just want to quote short passages from your paper, Does Network Complexity Help Organize Babel's Library, where you reference Jorge Luis Borges, who wrote this story, La Biblioteca de Babel, about this fictional library in which you've got books with every possible sequence of characters. And then the librarians are tasked with finding all of the sensical texts that could ever be written. Similarly, Marco, in your paper, Topology of Networks and Generalized Musical Spaces, you talk about how the traditional chromatic set of the 12-tone equal temperament system, if you extend it to quarter tones, 88 keys on a piano, you get three orders of magnitude of possible combinations more than the Avogadro number, the units in the mole of any substance. So we're talking about these enormous conceptual spaces of the possible. And yet, you know, one of the themes that comes up in conversation at SFI again and again is how it is that evolution, wherever we look for it, adaptive systems basically manifest in only a very sort of narrow band out of this enormous band of possibility. And so both of these research threads converge on a horizon about a very, very deep question in complex system science, which is why the vast majority of melodies or protein sequences or organismal anatomies or social orders don't exist. And one of the things that you both talk about is that there is a syntactic structure that you identify through applying these network theoretical approaches. And that at least in the Western compositional tradition, and apparently across all of the linguistic corpora you examined, you don't get reversible letter or melodic sequences, that there is a kind of, to think about it in terms of like a music theory approach, there is a dominant or a tonic, or in language, you have these words that are at the hub, you know, that things kind of circle out from and back to, and, you know, they have greater centrality. So yeah, I'd just love to hear you talk about that thing, you know, that pattern that we observe and its relationship to this notion of the unequal distribution of things over a, a landscape of possibility. 
So it's funny that you started by mentioning Jorge Luis Borges because uh, there is a, a, a talk that I give for colloquium-like talk uh, where I make the similarity between the approach uh, of Borges uh, in the Library of Babel and my kind of starting point of looking at the harmonic spaces uh, and using the 12 tones or the 24 tones and using the keys of the piano and so on. Because in a way, we can, if we want to, be completely deterministic and just you know build all the possibilities and then go from there. But on one hand, we know that there are structures that most likely evolve from our perception of music as you know, humans and how the, the music evolved with us over the course of uh, hundreds of thousands of years. But also, on the artistic point of view, it's a space uh, that is open to exploration. And so one of the things that fascinate me is uh, to see what happens if I use, uh, say, patterns or structures that come from uh, the evolution of music as we know it, uh, but apply to a, a set of completely different uh, units, in a way, that are not part uh, of the traditional music theory of music tools that we use. And so, I mean, it's a very interesting question at various levels. It's very complex in the sense that music is different from language in the sense that the message that music conveys is not apparently very clear yet. So, I mean, it's clear that music changes our emotional states, it changes our perceptual things, but it's not clear why we have music and all of human society have music. So where is this coming from and what is the evolutionary advantage of having music as one of our traits that makes us human. And the other thing that from here, again, goes to another kind of framework that I use in some of my talks, that is, okay, let's suppose that we have, I mean, I make this the similarities, I mean, this idea of the Voyager. Now, the Voyager is this probe that is going outside of the solar system. And for some reason, uh, they decided that they had to have uh, a disc uh, with music recordings and some very kind of uh, stylized instructions on how to hear these recordings or make a device that can make you hear what is in this disc. But what if uh, this disc goes into the hands of another civilization, another planet where they don't have music as part of the evolutionary uh, traits, but they are super good with data, better than us. Can they appreciate the structure of what we are sending them by looking at the data in an aesthetic way? And so this is also another thing that adds to the plate and this discussion and connects this data and I mean all these things about artificial intelligence and art so it brings uh, another element to this table of uh, music and structure and topologies and evolution and cultures and societies and, and so on. Yes, and also I will add, and Marco, please jump into this comment if you want, because there was something very amazing for me that happened during the working group that we have in person and was... I would say something very trivial for some people, but, you know, for us that we were there discussing music, and for me, actually, it was very surprising just to know and to hear that for the people that was there in that working group, uh, the most important thing that happened in their life relating with music was some sound, not just music, but particular sound. Do you remember that, Marco? And that, for me, 
was kind yeah, of very yeah. impressive. So, you know, it was something there that still I'm kind of processing that information because the importance of sound in our human culture, you know, I will say not just music, but the importance of sound. And then this more complex structure of sound that is music, let's say, you know, I'm just being a little bit fuzzy here, but anyway. And that was something very important for me too, that I want to at some point doing something with that, probably studying something related with that and, you know, the relationship with sound, really sound and the human experience of sound, not just, you know, looking at music per se. And that was something very important for me during the working group, actually. So to that point, Miguel, you've actually kind of led me by the hand directly into the next question that I had for the two of you which has to do, if we can double back all the way to 2014 and this paper that you wrote for uh, the Entropy Journal on complexity and the emergence of physical properties, a lot of these questions about music and you know, a huge piece of the conversation I had earlier this summer with Dimitri touches on the experience of music and the aesthetic properties of music and why it is that music is perceived as being good you know and people are you know have for centuries been on the hunt for you know objective ontological kind of answers to you know what constitutes good music but there's something in all of this conversation that always doubles back to this question of a balance between you know the role of expectation and the role of surprise which is very very deep in the way that information theory has been articulated in the way that you see these arguments around the notion of emergence and specifically emergent properties as characteristics of systems that surprise us because they're not predictable from an analysis of the parts of those systems. And, yes. And so I'd love to hear you talk about this particular piece because you come up with a way of formalizing this. And then at the end, you quote Carl Hempel and Paul Oppenheim, which is something that I really love. I'm kind of putting the cart before the horse here, but I love this quote. Emergence of a characteristic is not an ontological trait inherent in some phenomena. Rather, it is indicative of the scope of our knowledge at a given time. Thus, it has no absolute, but a relative character. And what is emergent with respect to the theories available today may lose its emergent status tomorrow. So that, again, speaks to the way that our theory of, our perception of music and the experience of music has changed over time and changes between cultures. And so, yeah, I'd love to hear you yeah. get into the more like kind of a mathier piece about this paper, because then I think from there we have a stronger place to stand. So, you know, that piece of work actually was um, some effort that I was trying to do for years, actually. I was studying some aspect of philosophy and complexity science. And the thing is that I don't know if I can really say what I really think now also related with music and that in connection with that piece. The idea basically is that I was using a lot of information and a lot of insight coming from Murray Gelman. Actually, Murray Gelman, in relation with that particular discussion, is very, very important. And Amazingly, that relate, and I will say that is in the core of complexity science because it's related with a complexity metric that Murray Gelman produced around 1980, 1990 or something like that in his uh, famous book. 
to try to understand something, you need to have a theory. First thing, you need to have a theory, you need to have an idea of how the world is working. If you have that theory, you can put that thing that you see outside there in the world and using some symbols or not, using an algorithm, you can put that uh, particular phenomena in a piece of paper, let's say, and you can say how complex is your theory related to that uh, phenomena. And the idea is that then if you have something that you do not understand very well, you will need a lot of information to understand that thing that you do not understand very well. So the complexity of that phenomena or that object increase a lot. And I will say that in music, probably we can have the same thing that when you have an innovation in music or a new type of way of doing in music, what is happening is basically that you have someone that in some way, and this is the funny thing, decrease the complexity of his composition a lot, creating something new. But if you are using the previous theory or the previous way of looking at that piece of music, you will need a lot of information or a lot of uh, knowledge to cover that. And that is not a trivial way because you can produce something very simple, very simple, but it means a lot. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying, but it does not related with the number of beats of your composition. It's related with the knowledge or the different information that you want to say with the new composition. And that relates with the piece of work that I was doing at that time. I don't remember the year, but that piece of work that you mentioned, Michael, the emergence of physical properties. That was 2014. Yeah, 2014. Well, I mean, there is a question that I have following up on this, and it has to do with, you know, I want to link all of this back to the work on you know networks and language and in music and then through that to work that you've done on social crisis and the evolution of society because in this piece that you did on babel's library you basically say you know now we have a way to argue that there are these network structure in an otherwise ineffable text or something that we think might be a text it seems like in a way that these two statements kind of contradict one another because you're leaving this opening where it says that even if you think that there is no pattern, there may well be one. But there's this paper that I feel like I mention all too frequently on this show by <laughs> Michael Lockman and Chris Moore and, and Mark Newman about the physical limits of communication where they demonstrate mathematically that you might be looking right at an encrypted alien broadcast without realizing it because it would be indistinguishable from black body radiation. So, you know, there's this sense in which if our own ability to observe things at a more and more kind of powerful and complete way is always evolving and you know, you get like every generation says the music of the next generation is noise, but then like you train on that and you find the next generation coming up knows what to expect in jazz or what to expect in rock and roll. I'm curious if you think there really is a conflict between these different ways of seeing it when, as you've 
already made really clear in this paper that subjectivity plays such a big role in this. And then, you know, from there, I hope, you know, I can start to ask you some questions about what this means when we reflect on the experience of living through a moment like our moment historically, where the structures that we've inherited for making sense of the world seem to be deeply challenged and new structures have to come into being in order to adapt to all of this transformation. So that's, I don't know, that's a lot, but yeah. Yeah. You know, just to begin with, I mean, for sure you can do random piece of music. I mean, random noise piece of music, let's say, let's put it that name, but the context is very, very important. So, you know, it's not just the piece. So there is a lot of information around that piece that is very important. So, I will not say that this type of piece of work is living itself out there, but you know you need some context. Again, you need an observer that the observer could have or not that information of that context, which is very, very important. So I will say that always you are playing that game of, do I have all the information that I need? Yeah, this is like a, a continuous debate about art and, uh, you know, the next generation that, that of artists that are criticized by all the older audiences and, and visitors of museums or galleries that say, oh, but this is not art, this is junk, whatever. I mean, it's always, this is, I think it's universal in the history of human culture in a way. And this is true for music that, I mean, as well. I mean, right now we listen to Stravinsky, The Light of Spring as a great masterpiece. And when it premiered in 1911, I think it was like a great failure. <laughs> and people were shouting and leaving yeah. the theater and throwing rocks and stuff. <laughs> Big riots. <laughs> so, I mean, that's part of the cultural revolution. Now, how, I mean, definitely there are ways that we can connect this in quantitative way to a mathematical framework or a network framework or a generally compressed design framework. Did we do this for this particular project? Not yet. Huh? We don't have yet answers. Huh? We have a lot of questions. And that's a great starting point because if you have the questions, then there is work ahead. So actually, before we get into the work on social crisis, Miguel, I'd like to just hairpin out for a moment because there's because Marco, you've got this interesting piece on materials sound music, a computer-aided data-driven composition environment for the sonification and dramatization of scientific data streams. Like everything that we're talking about here seems to come up in conversations about sonifying data, because as you note in this piece, the sonification of scientific data is a compositional process. It starts with initial choices made by the scientist or composer. And so there you have that interpreter. Or the way that maybe David Krakauer would put it is that natural selection is a kind of diffuse intelligence. And, you know, we need a better way of thinking about this, of theorizing what natural selection really even is. And so when we're talking about composers as something that nature does, that's the framing I want to kind of drop on this. And I'd love to hear you talk about the systems that you've actually designed for this and where you're applying them, because that links us back to work that you've done on materials. And then we can zag back. I mean, it might become a very long conversation because, well, in short, uh, there are various interpretations of the word sonification and various ways that people use data in different contexts. And so it, it, the game becomes a, a matter of context. 
Sonification itself, uh, as a scientific perceptualization method, uh, should be as objective as possible. I mean, it's like you are plotting your data and you are seeing trends, uh, or you are listening to your data and you are hearing the same trends and you learn how to interpret those uh, in an objective way or in a scientific way. And what I'm talking about, instead, the use of data as kind of building block of composition, I'm using an approach that is creative and is basically detached from the actual meaning of the data in that sense. It maintains the structure or maintains some characteristics that makes this data so interesting from a creative point of view, but it loses the connection with the actual things. You are not doing an experiment anymore. You are not probing reality. You are basically interpreting something in terms of your own kind of frame of mind in terms of a creative process. Now, this said, though, when we look at music and music structures uh, as data structures, then you have an extra layer of connection because you are using data that are already part of the framework. I mean, it's kind of a self-reference in a way because you are using data that are coming from the place where you are, but you are interpreting them in a different way. And this is always related to a creative process. In an analytic sense, we basically try to build tools that allow us to analyze the data in a way that tells us something about the music. So that's kind of my perspective on this. And uh, what Dimitri would say is that uh, things that we are finding uh, with this analysis might be well known to musicologists because they've been trained for years uh, to recognize the structure. But what Miguel was saying earlier, we want to be agnostic in this. We don't want to infuse our prior knowledge uh, and get you know the results that confirm uh, our conception uh, of the structure we are looking at, but we want to see if we can, by use of these tools, uh, to kind of see the composition as an emerging property in a way that then tells us something about what the composer was doing or what the context of the piece was uh, in a general sense. And it's a very complicated thing because there is not just one element that you need to look at. Right now, we are just looking at one element uh, that is harmony, but I mean, there are musical elements that we are not considering. There are social elements, cultural elements, uh, environmental elements. Uh, I mean, you name it. I mean, the art is not something that exists in the mind of the artist. It exists in a context. It seems very akin to, based on everything you're saying, the question of how do we identify, say, life on Mars and know that we didn't contaminate the sample, right? So, like, in what ways are you applying all of this to things like the data that you're getting about the structure of materials. And then what are you learning from that? And how is that different? In what ways are you seeing the sonified data coming out in a way that shows like a distinct qualitative difference from something that you might recognize as like a human composition? Well, I think that these are two different layers, not separated, but distinct. So, and again, it has to do with the artistic interpretation of the data that you are extracting. When I talk about sonification, I really talk about the way of translating uh, or transducing uh, data in a way that I can appreciate the structure of the data set uh, or the information contained in the data through an analysis based on a sound. And I'm not talking about music here. I'm talking about, uh, as I was saying before, I mean, our way of uh, understanding data is biased by 
Cartesian coordinates. We basically plot everything on two dimensions. We look at curves. We say, oh, this curve peaks here, peaks there, means that and that. But for me, an effective sonification strategy is a strategy that allows me to hear the data and get the same information or more, because I can encode more information in sound than I can on a two-dimensional graph in a way that allows me to make scientific prediction or scientific interpretation of a particular phenomenon. So I think this is a completely different level or layer of complexity in a way that has to do in the way which we perceive sound as sound. And so this goes to what Miguel was saying about you know sound perception, what it means to us, the perception of sound, how we elaborate sound in our minds, uh, our brains, and so on. I think that the question about the music and the data is more a cultural question, a creative aspect question, is an artistic question that uh, has intersections with what I was talking about sonification before, but not necessarily means the same thing. So for instance, that people say, ah, we are here in the Higgs boson because there is this guy that takes, uh, you know, the bass guitar and plays uh, and basically maps uh, the peaks uh, of the experiment, the result of the experiment to notes uh, on the stuff paper. That's not sonification that's because it doesn't tell me anything about the Higgs boson. And maybe it's bad music, but... <laughs> 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 but then it gets the headlines like, oh, the music of the Higgs boson, or the music of the sound. I mean, this <laughs> doesn't mean anything. The sound doesn't make any sound. And the Higgs boson doesn't make any sound. <laughs> it's our interpretation of these things. That, again, it's a matter of context. I'm a scientist that I cannot see because I have, I mean, I'm blind, for instance. And there is a very famous example of this astrophysicist. Uh, whom uh, she started this whole program on solidification of observational data in astronomy, because then she could basically analyze the data through the ears rather than through the eyes. And there are examples of this. Uh, this is a true scientific solidification in a way. We are not trying to write a, a symphony out of this process. We are trying to understand you know, this particular galaxy or that particular constellation of stars or whatever. Thanks for clarifying this for me. I hope I'm not forcing a fit here by inquiring with you, Miguel, because where I want to take this is ever since David Krakauer brought up your work on social crisis back in our transmission series on COVID, like March 2020, I've been fascinated by your findings that there are early warning indicators that a society is going through a transformation in the way that it handles information, the structures by which it organizes itself. And in the piece that you co-authored, led by one Pablo Cardenas, you say at the beginning, yeah, despite the loss of order in the social organization questioned by the crisis, we observe the emergence of new complex ephemeral structures of information, which seem to be early warning signals of profound social transformations. And that there seems to be to me anyway, a strong analogy between what you're observing here and what Gustavo Martinez noted in the 2020 working group about applying quantitative approaches to understanding harmonic structure in music and identifying that there was an arrow of time. If you look at five centuries of classical music, you actually see it increasing in structural complexity. I'd love to hear both of you riff on what I hope leaves us in a kind of optimistic place that the epistemic crisis or the sense-making crisis, the, you know, these terms that people apply to the challenges to our knowledge structures by the internet 
which seem kind of similar to the challenges that were posed centuries ago by the printing press and led to breakdown and the ways that we understood things and resulted in stuff like the 30 years war, that there might be a way out of this or that all of this perceived chaos might actually be a passing dissonance on the way to a harmonic resolution into a new and more complex logical order. But I guess in order to get there, we've got to talk about this paper on how you used Twitter data to understand social discord in, in Chile and what you discovered in that work? Yes. Well, thank you, Michael. The idea of using first Chile was because Chile was and is actually in a great transformation, social transformation. So with our team here, we thought that this was very nice to look at Chile during the complete process and still is in a process, but you know, it's, the process is ending. Uh, with a new constitution that's happening this weekend, actually. Uh, I mean, there is a votation to see if the people will want to have the new constitution or not this weekend. So we thought it was a good idea to focus on Chile because it's a very kind of little country compared with another ones in the region. And we studied this Twitter dynamics just to see if we can have an idea of how information is changing during this crisis process. We knew there will be some very, very particular days, hours of a huge amount of social crisis in the street, you know, financial crisis. We knew that because really the country was going through this process. So we put all the machinery to see Twitter and actually we found looking at and producing again metrics coming from complexity science that we were able to see early warning signal hours before, probably the day before that a new crisis happens in the street. That was fascinating and at the same time was kind of, you know, very kind of, uh, you know, surprising, fascinating, everything. And when we analyze at the end the data, the idea is very simple, actually, that you have a lot of information building up in small groups with a lot of content. And this was a kind of a chain reaction. I'm using a metaphor now. It's like looking at a chain reaction in society where you can have, you know, a start point of this conversation in this digital platform and this chain reaction was happening and then, you know, it's finally kind of fading out during this crisis moment that people was in the street, you know, doing things. I will not say problems because, you know, people was kind of uh, manifesting there in the street, sometimes with a huge impact in different dimension of society, you know, transport, sometimes problem in the commercial part of the capital, etc., etc. Now, actually, we are building this idea, actually, and I think the basic, I will not say theory, but the basic idea is there in the air that I'm with you in that, Michael, that what we think is happening, at least in Chile and places like in Chile, is that you increase the complexity of society. I mean, the individual, when is putting in this new society, new, I mean, this modern society, the individual needs to fight with a lot of things. The amount of complexity of living in this capital is huge. And we think actually that this increasing of complexity at some point 
go through a maximal level and then there is something, and that is your point, I think, Michael, where you need to have a new type of uh, social agreement and this complexity decrease a little bit or decrease by a huge amount. And then you build again this new type of uh, complexity through social agreement, etc., etc. So the idea that we are having now in our little group here now is that you have these cycles of complexity in social dynamics where you kind of build a society, you increase the complexity and you need to have a new agreement and then you decrease the complexity. Kind of this reset of Jeffrey West on innovations. I say kind of because we are talking now as social agreement, I mean, really social agreement. And that also is a a dynamic that we observe in a different scales. The Western society have passed through that over the times. You can imagine the League of Nations, something really interesting now. I'm kind of studying this uh, nowadays. They produced the League of Nations. There was a big failure during the Second World, and then you have the United Nations. It was a big crisis during the last conflict in Europe. I think we are observing now a restructuration of things at different level, again, from the point of view of the countries, and I will say from the international order, I will say pretty soon, soon during this century probably. And again, And I think this is because we build on increasing the complexity of the complete system, and then we need to kind of find a way to decrease this complexity, to make sense to the individual, the different level of society, to live in this complex world, actually, complex dynamics. I mean, in the context of music uh, that we are talking about here, we see things that are similar to this, uh, both in our work uh, and in general. If you look at the history of Western music, there is always kind of a cycle of increasing complexity. I mean, one of the results uh, of this preliminary work in which we are proposing, Miguel and I, ways of measuring complexity, or at least harmonic complexity at some level, using statistical mechanics ideas, shows us that uh, that indeed there is this kind of trend of increased complexity and then drops and then increase and drop again. So this behavior is more, I mean, clearly it's the composers and the people that make music that make this happen. But I mean, we see this in the history of jazz, we see it in the history of classical music, uh, pop uh, and, and so on. What I find uh, kind of very interesting uh, and this also links to this idea of the internet and you know how our society will be changed by that. Uh, I see there is a lot of music out there, uh, music by people that are not necessarily the one that kind of lead the field. And there are very interesting ideas that are coming out. There are some new outlets uh, for music. I mean, if you think about it, when I was growing up, there was one TV channel. Now there are you know Netflix and Prime Video and all this, uh, I mean, there are some TV series uh, that if you listen carefully to the music, uh, the music is very interesting. It's new. It combines different aspects. Uh, it's something that we never heard before. And, you know, I'm very optimistic that this process will continue. And I'm also very optimistic that eventually it's true that once uh, Gutenberg started to print the Bible in German, uh, there was a war. But then afterwards, uh, 
now we have books <laughs> that before we didn't. <laughs> and all of us can have books. So, and here we are kind of this uh, overflow of knowledge uh, that if you want to get from the internet, you can get. Uh, and you have to be very careful about what is real knowledge, what is fake, uh, what is made up. But I think that eventually all this will produce uh, a reorganization in the arts and culture and society that I hope would be positive. I mean, if we want to stay on this planet for a few more thousand years. <laughs> yeah, so it, I mean, I'm just optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I mean, it's actually funny because, you know, Stuart Firestein on our factual faculty gave that talk earlier this summer, the community lecture, where he said that basically uncertainty is a kind of a prerequisite for optimism. Like, yeah, you don't know. You have to believe that things are going to be different. You have to believe that things will be better. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, in closing and to give you kind of just one last thing to riff on it, maybe this is kind of like propagandistic or, or institutionally self-serving to even note this, but it strikes me that, Miguel, in your work, when you're talking about what you actually observe as a foreshadowing of social transformation, it's the way that the network of associations between different topics and themes proliferates and that we're seeing something very much like this that is embodied in the growing popularity of inter-slash-cross-slash-transdisciplinary work broadly and instantiated in organizations like SFI and more specifically in the music and complexity working group itself, which, you know, very deliberately makes this point to engage a recombination algorithm and like bringing all of these different people together to ignore the legacy silos in which all of them would have historically that like the that it's almost like what we're seeing is sort of like idea sex emerging out of the need for mimetic rather than genetic information to be exchanged much more rapidly as a response to a even faster paced and a wilier environment. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, or you can just open response and let me know what else you think has been unaddressed in this conversation that would be worth noting before we bounce. No, just a little note on that. It was not easy to take this working group and going through this level that we are now, actually, Michael. And that, that is something that is I would like to stress because, you know, sometimes you think that it's very, not you, I mean, people and probably me too. I mean, sometimes you underestimate this place where we live as a, you know, researcher or people that is in academia, that is our comfort zone. But, you know, during this working group, I think we try hard and I think we are now kind of a little bit more comfortable with the people that we can exchange ideas in a more or less free way, more or less, I say, just because, you know, you have this boundary of disciplines, etc. It was not easy. And I'm very happy that this is happening now. I'm very happy where we are now, actually. We are looking forward to have, you know, a new event such as the one we have. It was a kind of, I will not say difficult, but, you know, it was at the beginning and now I think I'm very happy for that I mean that is happening yeah I think that the I mean going back to what you were saying interdisciplinarity and cross-disciplinarity I think these are there is it's inevitable that we need to go towards this kind of framework for doing science for doing innovation technology and knowledge and art and music I mean I myself I'm super interdisciplinary I teach courses in physics and in composition in two different colleges. 
And I'm kind of pushing this idea of interdisciplinarity to my students who are doing things in both realms so that they grow with a kind of a wider perspective that goes beyond the fact that, oh, I need to do this project because if not, I can't graduate. So we need to kind of build a new workforce or general, you know, kind of conscience of humanity that we can't keep doing things isolated. And uh, eventually, I think we should have some economists in our working group on music because music is part of the economy and the fabric uh, of society. So it goes beyond, uh, you know, what is the structure of what it means and what it means in a particular context, uh, in a particular political situation, uh, in a particular time, uh, and the way in which, I mean, there is only through a really interdisciplinary and cross-disciplinary group of people that you can address all these issues and make, you know, kind of a model or make a theory, make a new, actually, I'm advocating for making a new discipline within music, music complexity that encompasses all these different aspects and is quantitative, you know, and brings together all these ideas and people from all work of life, basically, or the science and the arts. Well, that's an ennobling and inspiring place to land <laughs> this conversation. I, I want to thank you both for taking the time to sit down and indulge us with all of this. Yeah, thanks so much. Well, thank you, Michael. I hope to see you soon in South <laughs> Yeah, thank you, Michael. The same. And nice to see you, Marco. Nice to see you, Miguel. We have to talk. <laughs> thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.